0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the February 8th edition of the WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Fulsen, attorney of the Floyd Scarron Law Firm. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The California Supreme Court rejected the attempts of a major labor union and several ride hailing drivers to overturn Proposition 22, which is a newly passed ballot measure classifying gig workers as independent contractors in California. They asked the state Supreme Court to invalidate Prop 22 after more than 58% of voters supported it last November. They argued the measure limits state legislators' ability to implement a system of workers' compensation in defiance of their constitutional authority to do so. The groups took particular issue with the measure's inclusion of a provision requiring a 7-8 legislative supermajority to amend and even define what constitutes an amendment of the new law. They said they were suing in the state Supreme Court rather than a lower court because the issues were of broad public importance and required a speedy resolution to minimize harm to the gig economy and its workers. However, the Supreme Court refused to hear the case, and did not write a formal opinion. The docket entry simply stated that the petition for writ of mandate was denied without prejudice to refiling it in an appropriate court. Thus, their arguments were not heard on the merits and were redirected to the jurisdiction of lower courts. However, this will likely require years of costly litigation. First in lower courts, then intermediate appellate courts, and finally back to the California Supreme Court. It would not be unusual for this to be a 10-year journey. The Court of Appeal ruled that a 132A claim was not released by a companion civil settlement without WCAB approval. Here's what happened in the WCAB panel decision of Varga v. Vons Grocery Stores. Edward Vaca pursued both a tort claim and a number of workers' compensation claims against his employer, Vons, including a 132A claim for discrimination. The 132A was filed in each comp case and was the subject of a 2015 finding and award finding of violation of Labor Code Section 132A, and that finding was affirmed by an opinion on decision after reconsideration in 2019. Damages for the Section 132A claim were to be informally adjusted by the parties with jurisdiction reserved by the WCAB. While the workers' compensation claim was still pending, Vons and Varga entered into a confidential settlement agreement and general release of claims in this civil action in 2016. The civil settlement agreement contained language that Vons' claims provided for the release of the 132A claim, although the settlement agreement did not specifically provide for that in a clear and unambiguous way. In 2020, the matter proceeded to trial in the WorkCop case on the issue of whether applicants' 132A claim had been settled by language in the civil settlement agreement. After hearing the case, the WorkCop judge concluded that it was not released. Reconsideration was denied in the panel decision of Varga v. Vons Grocery Stores, and the Court of Appeal recently denied a petition for writ review. Thus, this decision is now final. The panel concluded that the Labor Code plainly prohibits contracts such as releases that purport to exempt employers from liability for workers' comp without WCAB approval. Thus, the panel was therefore unable to discern statutory support for the employer's position since the civil settlement had not been approved. By the WCAB. And now our crime report. A national electronic health records technology vendor, uh, Athena Health Incorporated, has agreed to pay $18.25 million to resolve allegations that it paid unlawful kickbacks to generate sales of its EHR product, Athena Clinicals. Government officials allege that Athena violated the anti-kickback statute through three marketing programs. First, Athena invited prospective and existing customers to concierge events and provided free tickets to and amenities at sporting, entertainment, and recreational events, including trips to the Masters Tournament and the Kentucky Derby, with complimentary travel and luxury accommodations meals, and alcohol. Second, Athena paid kickbacks to its existing customers under a lead generation program designed to identify and refer new prospective clients to Athena. Under this program, Athena paid up to $3,000 to existing customers for each new client that signed up for Athena services, regardless of how much time, if any, the existing customer spent speaking to or meeting with the new client. Finally, Athena entered into deals with competing vendors that were discontinuing their EHR technology offerings to refer their clients to Athena. Under such deals, Athena paid remuneration to the competitors based on the value and volume of practices that were successfully converted into Athena clients. The FBI spokesperson said that it is illegal for companies to extend invitations to all expense-paid sporting entertainment and recreational events and other perk-filled offers to its prospective customers to win business and boost their bottom line through illegal kickback schemes. The settlement resolves allegations in a lawsuit filed by Uh, and a separate lawsuit filed under the Key Tom or Whistleblower provisions of the False Claim Act. The Act permits individuals to sue on behalf of the government for false claims and to share in any recovery. The whistleblower in this case's share will be awarded in connection with the settlement, but it has not yet been determined. Mario Rosenberg, a 73-year-old physician who lives in Beverly Hills, is the last of 19 defendants in a $154 million medical insurance fraud scheme dating back more than two decades. He was sentenced to three years of formal probation, 1,000 hours of community service, and ordered to pay $2.9 million in restitution. He is one of the doctors accused of performing more than 1,000 unneeded surgeries on healthy patients. Prosecutors allege that nearly 2,900 people across the country were recruited to undergo unnecessary and dangerous surgeries in exchange for access to lower-cost cosmetic surgery. Authorities once described this as the largest medical fraud prosecution in the United States and dubbed the scheme the Unity Outpatient Surgery Center Scheme, referring to the Unity Outpatient Surgery Center in Buena Park, California. Rosenberg primarily performed colonoscopies and esophagogastroduodnoscopy procedures. He was accused of performing 646 procedures on 554 patients, which resulted in the fraudulent billing to insurance companies of more than $9 million. 84% of his patients were referred by cappers who were also criminally charged in the case. Rosenberg entered a no-contest plea in this case back in 2014, and since then, attorneys have been working to assess his assets and determine how much he should pay in restitution. The Unity Cappers, or recruiters, targeted employers from businesses in more than 32 states who were covered by PPO insurance plans, so that pre-approval from these insurance companies would not be a requirement for doing a surgery. More than 1,600 employers were affected by employees who were involved in this scheme. The Cappers arranged transportation for the patients, scheduled the surgeries, and coached the healthy patients on what to say. In exchange for undergoing surgery, the patients would receive a cash payment, usually between $300 and $1,000 per surgery, or credit toward a free or discounted cosmetic surgery. Many of the surgeries were performed on Saturdays and Sundays by the doctors, and often they operated on members of the same household on the same day. 45-year-old Crescencio Velasco Covarrubias, who lives in Buttonwillow, California, was arranged on multiple felony counts of insurance fraud after allegedly failing to disclose prior work-related injuries in order to help him collect workers' compensation benefits. Covarrubias filed a work comp claim for an injury he sustained in 2017 while employed at a retail warehouse center. He alleged he injured his left ankle, foot, heel, and back when he misstepped while sweeping. As part of the claims processes, Kovarubias was responsible for reporting any prior injuries as they could have affected the outcome of his current claim. An investigation revealed that back in 2010, Kovarubias filed a work comp claim processed by a different insurance company for a bilateral knee, neck, and back injury, along with his left foot and ankle injuries. Kovarubia's injuries were treated in the 2010 case, and he received a $90,000 settlement for the old case. The investigation into the new June 27 injury claim found that Covarrubias not only failed to report the November 2010 injuries, but when he was specifically asked about it, he denied any prior injuries to his left foot, ankle, or back. His employer's insurance company lost $87,000 because of his false statements in the new claim. Covarrubias self-surrendered and was arraigned on January 7 and he's scheduled to return to court on March 15. And in regulatory news, a year after the first COVID-19 case hit California, Cal-OSHA, the state agency in charge of policing warehouses, offices, factories, and other workplaces, is woefully understaffed and significantly undercounting the number of employees who have fallen seriously ill or died as a result of the coronavirus. According to data obtained by the Sacramento Bee through a Public Records Act request, California employers reported only 1,600 serious worker illnesses or deaths to CalOSHA from the start of the pandemic through mid-December. The agency's inspectors determined that only 779 of those serious or deadly infections were actually contracted in the workplace. That represents only a tiny fraction of the 3.2 million people who have tested positive for the disease in California and less than 2% of the more than 41,000 who have died from it. While state inspectors have responded to thousands of complaints and levied fines against some workplaces that failed to report serious cases, but a long-existing staffing shortage has hindered that process. There were 107 job openings posted for the department of, as of the beginning of February. The agency's database includes employer names, inspection numbers, and dates that the businesses reported to the state serious illnesses, which are defined by cal as cases that resulted in deaths or hospitalization. It is the most detailed official glimpse into how the coronavirus has seriously harmed employers in California, but it's far from a complete portrait. The database identifies only businesses that have volunteered information to the state, Workplace researchers, health experts, and lawmakers all agree their data is likely missing swaths of essential workers who were seriously sickened at work. The director of UC Berkeley's labor occupational health program said that the Cal OSHA figures are way under the experience that has been reported daily about the huge numbers of serious illnesses and deaths among people who have not been able to shelter at home. Taken as a whole, the Cal database creates an improbable portrait of significant COVID-19 cases in the workplace. Only four serious confirmed illnesses have been recorded at poultry processing plants an industry that in reality has been a well known hot spot for COVID 19. Just 77 serious cases have been tallied across all of California's agriculture, meat, and poultry sectors. According to Cal OSHA's data, Sacramento County had 51 confirmed workplace infections. That's second only to the 220 cases reported in Los Angeles County one of the nationwide epicenters for COVID-19. Yet, according to Los Angeles County health officials, more than 16,000 Angelenos have died and more than 1 million have contracted the diseases. Critics say that the lopsided reporting of the most serious suspected cases, deaths, and major illnesses, and a de facto honor system for companies to report problems are the latest in a line of failures at the state's long-struggling worker safety department. However, in another story just released, Cal-OSHA has reported citations issued to multiple employers for not protecting workers from COVID-19 during inspections in various industries throughout the state. Violations were identified in industries including healthcare restaurant, retail, fitness centers, correctional institutions, and more. Inspections at the San Quentin and Avonall State Prisons occurred after reports of hospitalizations of staff following outbreaks at the institutions. Cal determined that San Quentin staff were not provided adequate training or equipment for working with COVID-19 infected individuals. And employees who had been exposed to COVID-19 positive inmates were not provided proper medical services, including testing, contact tracing, and referrals to physicians or other licensed healthcare care professionals. And Avanall State Prison was cited for three serious violations after Cal found it failed to maintain an effective written aerosol transmissible disease program, including site-specific instructions. Avenal also had an inadequate written respiratory protection plan and failed to implement or enforce work practice controls to minimize exposure to COVID-19 amongst its employees. And a Ventura-based center, BSF Fitness, was cited after a report that the employer was not enforcing face covering use and physical distancing in its gym. Also, Kaiser Permanente Medical Centers in several locations were cited for multiple deficiencies in their aerosol, transmissible disease, and respiratory protection programs. Also cited were four skilled nursing centers because they failed to immediately report serious illnesses suffered by employees. And Cardinus Market in Oakland was cited for multiple violations following media coverage of an outbreak where 17 workers tested positive for COVID-19 last May. Grimway Enterprises Incorporated was cited for multiple violations following a fatality-initiated inspection. And Calosha also cited Carter's Children Wear in Gilroy, for failing to immediately report a COVID-19-related serious illness and failing to establish, implement, and maintain an effective injury illness prevention program. Inheriting a mounting bureaucratic disaster that has floated lifelines to inmates but left newly jobless Californians broke, Lawmakers are calling for a reboot of the Employment Development Department. They have been pressed to act after a series of criminal investigations and audits revealed inmates and fraudsters took the EDD for at least $10 billion during the pandemic. A group of assembly members say sweeping changes are needed to make the troubled department functional once again. The bills call for improvements to the department's identity verification process, an oversight board to monitor unemployment claims, a task force to further investigate fraud, a simplified application process, and direct deposit options for claimants. The reform package comes one day after the department's leadership received a lashing from the Assembly Committee. During a marathon oversight hearing, flummoxed and angry lawmakers on both sides of the aisle spent five hours recounting stories of people forced to live in their cars while waiting for unemployment benefits that never arrived. One of the proposals, Assembly Bill 110, attempts to prevent benefits from going to inmates, by requiring the EDD to cross-check all claims against state and local incarceration records. Lawmakers also want to spend $55 million on a task force to aid ongoing fraud investigations, as well as a new oversight board to ensure unemployment benefits are being distributed swiftly and accurately. In addition to cracking down on past and future fraud, The lawmakers want to make the system easier to use and more accessible. While unemployment skyrocketed last year, the EDD answered fewer than 1% of phone calls made by confused residents. Unable to get through to the department, residents have instead flooded their local elected officials with requests to help with unemployment applications and Assembly Bill 402 would give people an official avenue for help by creating a sort of consumer advocate arm to sift through its application issues. Related proposals would allow claimants to receive benefits by way of direct deposit, would require EDD to offer more options for non-English speakers, and a streamlined application process. The Division of Workers' Compensation has canceled the scheduled February 18, 2021 virtual public hearing on the proposed adoption of the COVID-19 evidence-based guideline to the medical treatment utilization schedule. The publishers of the American College of Occupational and Environmental Medicine's guidelines made an edit to the version of the coronavirus guideline, that DWC posted for the 30-day public hearing comment period. As a result, the DWC will not have sufficient time to repost the edited version and complete the formal guideline adoption process, since another ACOM update to this guideline is expected in mid-March. The DWC plans to adopt and incorporate ACOM's COVID-19 guideline into the MTUS when the next update is finally published. In the meantime, the DWC encourages providers to follow the MTUS medical evidence search sequence found in California Code of Regulations for the treatment recommendations pertaining to COVID-19. A U.S. congressional panel is investigating three large meatpacking companies, for possible worker safety violations following reports that hundreds of industry workers have died of COVID-19. The House of Representatives Coronavirus Subcommittee asked JBS USA, Tyson Foods Incorporated, and Smithfield Foods Incorporated to provide records of inspections, complaints, and other internal documents. The panel also asked the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, the nation's workplace safety watchdog, to provide records of its efforts to enforce worker safety rules. Meatpacking plants emerged as early hubs of coronavirus infection last spring, forcing many of them to close temporarily, which in turn pushed up meat prices. Companies erected physical barriers and took other steps to protect its workers, but they were not able to eliminate the risk of infection. Surrounding communities also were affected. According to the National Academy of Sciences, meatpacking plants were associated with at least 236,000 coronavirus cases and up to 5,200 deaths as of July. Labor unions and workers have accused the companies of taking inadequate steps to protect workers. But Smithfield, Tyson, and JBS said they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars on worker safety, bonuses, and other measures. All three companies said they would cooperate with the investigation. The Mead Institute Trade Group said... Case rates for industry workers were five times lower in December than they were in May, while infections rose for the U.S. population as a whole. The Coronavirus Subcommittee's chairman said his panel would also examine OSHA's enforcement efforts, which he described as ineffective. In response, OSHA said more stringent safety guidelines, which it just issued to employers this month, were a first step, in its efforts to work with Congress on worker protections. A Reuters investigation found that workplace inspections by OSHA dropped 44% between March, when the virus began, to spread widely in the United States, and December 2020. So that is all of our news and events for this week. Please check our website daily for news updates, Past editions of our news and much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and our special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or your Android device by searching for the WorkComp Academy with your podcast software. And we also publish our daily news podcast and other utilities on our free WorkCompApps.com smartphone app. Again, I'm Renee Fols with Floyd Scarin, and Langavin. Thanks for joining us today. Please drop by again next week for more news.